Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking up the Saul saga from 1 Samuel and a tiny little bit of 2 Samuel as well. And one of the reasons for this is simply the sheer fascination and hard nut to crack of the Saul story, not one that gets nearly as much airtime as, say, his successor, King David, but it's really hard. It is a painful story. It does not fit in well with the stories we like to tell from either testament. And for that reason, it has fascinated us. Um, It also is a good bridge between our previous few episodes dealing with the question of experience and heading forward into few that deal a few that deal more with political theology. So, Dad, I am going to rip us through the action of First Samuel and that tiny bit of Second Samuel. But before we go, what what is your particular um, reason for being interested in this? I proposed the topic, but you were quite eager to take it up too. Yeah, well, following upon my commentary on Joshua, uh, we'll see that one of the issues in Saul's uh, fall from grace is his disobedience of the rigorous demands of harem warfare, uh, the ban. And uh, so that, that for me, continues the uh, line of interpretation that uh, I was working on in the Joshua commentary. That's certainly of interest. But more broadly, um, there's kind of a, if we take scripture, canonical scripture, as a God's eye view of the divine history with all of humanity, then the the story of Israel is really the story of all humanity. Israel's story in particular, pars pro toto, is uh, the template through which all subsequent generations of humanity can in faith interpret their own stories. And that means particularly in 1 Samuel, the transition from tribalism and the attempts at tribal federation, and a uh, uh, which constantly succumbs to disunity, including inter-tribal warfare, and in disunity, weakness and depression by opposing powers like the Philistines, and the emergence of monarchy as a solution to that problem of, of disunity, but then all the problems inherent in political sovereignty that come with monarchy. And so in the end, I, I, I see First Samuel as a exploring uh, the dilemmas of the uh, institution of the state as an emergency order in a fallen world. Uh, and, and the pros and the cons that are all bound up in that, and the simul justus et peccator character uh, of the people who occupy uh, positions of political responsibility. So how's that for my, a statement of my interest? Oh, that's really wonderful. And I, I, the way you concluded there really speaks powerfully because there's still such a strong temptation to read biblical stories as going from bad to good. And here's how we get better. And here's what we should do. And I think what you said is exploring the pros and cons and all the painful trade-offs that come along and um, that it, it isn't it isn't clear that Israel goes from bad to 
to good or even from good to bad for that matter. It's so messy. And um, but being able to do that and reflect on it theologically continually in God's presence and God's working with what he's got in these emergency orders, like you said, rather than putting out a positive and permanent scheme for how it has to be. Uh, so there's a, a immense sophistication in this book. Um, and that's another reason why I like it. I'm a little more probably drawn to the personal story of Saul, but politically, there is so much to learn from it, too. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Sarah. The story, I really like would like us to focus on the story of Saul, because I think it's very tempting for us modern or postmodern people to interpret Saul as kind of a tragic hero who shakes his fist at his rejection by the Lord and says, I'm going to do the kingship anyway. And the more he the more he's rejected by the Lord, the more he defies. And isn't that heroic, standing up against the capriciousness of the God of Israel? <laughs> I just think that way of reading the Saul story uh, is, is uh, very attractive to modern people. And uh, my theological friend, Christine Helmer, I just would like to point out, uh, uh, saw a parallel phenomena in the so-called Luther Renaissance of the 19-teens and 20s, in which Luther was lifted up as a heroic one who st stood up to the Deus Obscunditus, the hidden God, and boldly, brilliantly defied the God of determination and fate and was heroic in that way. And Helmer sees that as a trope for the temptation to fascism and authoritarianism uh, that was current in Germany uh, uh, in the teens and 20s of the last century. Uh, and I think that's right. And I think we can see in the behavior of Saul the same kind of creep towards fascism uh, that occurs as he defies his rejection by the Lord. But not in a heroic, tragic hero kind of way. So I think the the maybe more relevant question, because this is, after all, an ancient te text, is does this have something more in common with Greek tragedy in which it is the fatal flaw that um, that determines from the outset, from the person's birth onward, that they are going to end up badly and there is nothing anyone can do about it. So rather than being something noble and heroic fighting against it, you know, Greek tragedy portrays richly deserved downfall and all you can do is gaze on and say, well, better him than me. So is, is Saul that kind of tragedy? I think that's another question we have to unpick. The, the modern one is clearly wrong, <laughs> but is the ancient Greek one closer to what we have here? I don't think so, but let's get into the story and we'll find out. Right. Okay. So I am going to summarize the action. Um, highly recommend to all of you read this. It is a good yarn. So just enjoy it for its own sake. I can imagine Israelites sitting around the campfire and enjoying this one a lot. So... First Samuel, chapters 1 through 7, we're not going to cover in detail, but it's about the rise of Samuel, his miraculous conception, his birth, going into the care of Eli, who has worthless sons, the death of those sons, theft of the ark, return of the ark from the Philistines, and everything seems to be going really well. Samuel is somewhere between a judge from the book of Judges and a prophet, more like we would see in Elijah and Elisha. He's more or less ruling Israel. His center is up north, and all is well. And 
And then those ungrateful, rotten tribes come to Samuel and say, we want a king to judge us like all the nations. And Samuel is beside himself with fury, thinking that he has been betrayed after all he's done for them. But the Lord responds to him, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And that's kind of the thesis statement of kingship that hangs over everything that unfolds. And even though it it primarily lands on Saul, it lingers on even over wonderful David and definitely over Solomon. And then when the kingdom split, um, there's pretty clear evidence that um, loyalty to God and loyalty to the king are not terribly compatible. Right. Very good. Very good. And I think that the, the crucial thing here is that even though Israel has rejected the Lord from being their king, the Lord grants their wish anyway, not only grants their wish, but singles out, specifies, elects their king, namely Saul. And so the Lord is actively accommodating their desire for political sovereignty, even though, uh, as you as you just, and I think you'll spell out now in detail, uh, the, this decision for political sovereignty over against the ethical kingship of the Lord um, uh, is deeply displeasing uh, to him. Uh, go ahead. You can then tell us why Samuel warns Israel of, of their future under political sovereignty. Yeah, I just want to follow up and say it's great you say that God accommodates and basically cooperates them. I just thought we always talk about human synergy with with God's actions, but maybe we should talk about God's synergy with our actions. That puts it in a much less flattering light. And yet, you know, God works with us all the same. So, um, yes, what's what I found really tremendous, I would, again, encourage all of you to read this. In chapter 8, Samuel comes to the, the tribes who are gathered and says, okay, you're going to get your king. God's going to choose a king for you. But let me tell you what kings are really like. And there's this amazingly long speech in which Samuel lists off all the things a king will take from you. The message is kings are takers. They are not givers. And it will be everything from your sons and daughters, your horses and chariots, your harvest, um, your vineyards, your olives your grain, your donkeys, your flocks, everything kings just take. And um, again, I think we see in there, as you com- contrasted with the uh, the, the ethical um, kingship of God over the people, and you mentioned before the intertribal warfare, which is obviously a huge issue, especially in the book of Judges. The problem is that it's the covenant only that has been keeping Israel together, and that's as it should be. But now they're going to have a king who keeps them together, something above and beyond the covenant. But the cost of having the king instead of just the covenant is that the king is going to take and take and take and take and take and take and take. Yeah, and that famous speech of Samuel concludes, Sarah, the king will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. End of speech. Oh, <laughs> actually, literally gives me goosebumps. It's so chilling. Yeah. Be careful what you pray for. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Yeah, the cost of centralization in so many ways and an upward trend ever since. Okay, well, then we shift over. Some of the pressure relieves a bit as we actually get to Saul, who is a man of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, 
which is one of the ends up being one of the surviving southern tribes in Judah many centuries later. And he comes from a wealthy family. He is a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people, which is a funny way of putting it. Um, so he's an impressive figure and a wealthy figure, but he's a little bit of a dope. <laughs> the story starts out with him going in search of his father's lost donkeys. Uh, so the whole context of his receiving the kinship is this um, ass hunt, shall we say. <laughs> and, and on his way, he comes across Samuel, the prophet. Um, there's an interesting little comment um, that he he is uh, the man of Samuel is a man of God. And there's a comment, today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So you see a kind of development even there in, in how uh, Israel thought about its interpreters of the Lord's will to them. And basically, after a, an overnight and a dinner, Samuel secretly anoints Saul and says, um, putting it in the form of a question, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And then he gives him signs that w when uh, certain things happen, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon Saul and God gives Saul another heart. Uh, I think this is super important to emphasize here because even though Saul is unwanted by God as, you know, well, a king is unwanted by God and Saul's story ends so badly, it is just piled on here at the beginning how clearly Saul really is God's choice, that Samuel anoints him, that the spirit of God rushes upon him, that Saul himself begins to prophesy. In fact, a proverb develops, is Saul among also among the prophets? Uh, there yeah. will be an ironic inversion at the end of the story. But anyway, there's no way you can avoid the idea... You can claim, well, Saul never was really properly king or God didn't really want him or he didn't have all the signs and markers. He did. He was anointed. The spirit of the, of God repeatedly came upon him and he acted in accordance with it. Yeah, and that indicates, doesn't it, that the kind of kingship, prince over Israel, it's not the, the Hebrew word is not actually king there, prince over his people Israel. Uh, the kind of kingship here is charismatic. It's the... Saul will be subordinate to the prophet Samuel, and the sign of his authority will be a share of Samuel's spirit. The spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. And notice that it also says there, the text says that by this God gives him another heart. And this question of the heart uh, and its hiddenness to human inspection and uh, the indicates a kind of a realm beneath the surface of appearances in which uh, God is active in history. Uh, that's why Leibniz, for example, called God the king of hearts. That is such a deep question of human sociality is, is do you really know the heart of the person you are with, you know, near or far? And uh, the farther they are from you, the harder it is to know. But even up close, it can be very difficult. We'll see that this is an important theme. Uh, God is not deceived by appearances, but the Lord is the one who searches and judges the heart. I, I think I've said this in a previous episode. My only little asterisk to all of this here is that, and kind of again for us moderns, the you know, and all that matters is what's in your heart is often a, a dodge, an ethical dodge, yeah. and an excuse against um, responsibility or courage and. Um, 
or like this idea that as long as you intend well, um, you're off the hook for whatever evil you do or good you fail to do. And that's clearly not the way this is being construed here. I think what you're you're making the point is that there is a a realm of interiority that that God truly knows and really, really does matter. And there is a correspondence between that and what happens in the world. But God is the final arbiter of it, not not ourselves, much less anyone else. Yeah, just to put a little bit a different twist on that is that all human behavior is motivated. But motivative, mo- motivations are not obvious. They're not always visible. And s- sometimes the behavior that we can observe uh, uh, is ambiguous. We don't know what's motivating it. Sometimes we don't even know ourselves what's motivating us. So this idea of, of God knows the heart, you could put into a modern idiom by saying God knows motives. God knows what's moving you. And the decisive thing here about the spirit rushing upon Saul and giving him a new heart is that so far as Saul is anointed and appointed and has a calling to be prince over the people Israel, he is being moved by the Spirit from the inside out in his behavior. Okay, so up through chapter 12, we have a more or less positive portrait of Saul, a couple instances of his heroic action in defense of Israel, his um, turning the other cheek even against those who have doubted him, rescuing Israelites in distress. Um, There's a kind of renewal of the kingdom and public confirmation of his kingship. Samuel gives, you know, more warnings, promises of blessing and so forth, but above all promises to go on praying to the Lord God um, on behalf of Israel. Then in chapter 13, things start to switch and we get some very extended and detailed scenes of action. So in 13, we hear for the first time about Jonathan, Saul's son, who will become very significant uh, when David comes along and essentially... um, Saul um, commits his first breach by offering a sacrifice that he was supposed to wait for Samuel to do. Um, you know, Samuel has been late to arrive and Saul finally loses patience. The You know, his his ranks are beginning to lose morale. So he decides to do it. Essentially, as I see it, he is breaching the wall between the political power and the religious power. He is acting like a prophet, but he is only a king. And then when Samuel shows up and finds out what you have, what he has done, he um, very sharply accuses him and says, you have not kept the command of the Lord, your God. Uh, um, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that's, that's, there's, there's a kind of double story of Saul's failure. So this is the first one. Right. And the loss of patience, of course, is, has something to do with the motives of the heart, doesn't it? When, when you lose patience, you've, you've lost trust. And not only have you lost trust, the loss of trust in Samuel's appearance to do the sacrifice leads him to assuming the power that belongs to the prophet, as it were, incorporating it into the kingship. Whereas it seems that this double relationship of prophet and king that had um, uh, been established by Samuel anointing Saul to begin with is necessary for the functioning of political sovereignty as an emergency order. 
in response to human sinfulness uh, uh, and not the direct rule of the Lord, uh, the ethical rule of the Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's kind of like an indication of the functional difference between the realms of the state and the realms of the church, to use anachronistic language. Uh, but you can see here that what Saul violates is this separation of powers, this distinction of functions, by assuming for himself the uh, Pontifex Maximus. When Julius Caesar marched into Rome and to become the first dictator of the Roman Empire, he assumed for himself that title. And I think Saul's doing something just like that. Right. And I think we, again, I want to acknowledge how complex it is because Saul also is a commander of armies and any commander knows how much the success of the attack depends on the morale of the soldiers and he's losing it and their success, their attack is not going to be successful and Israelites will be harmed if he doesn't do something. So in his own eyes, he is being responsible and doing the right thing, but Mm. it's not the right thing. And that's, I, I think that's more like the the tragic circumstances or the impossible trade-offs that sometimes real human existence imposes upon us. Right. Just think of for a moment back to Joshua and how he obeyed uh, Torah uh, even in preparation for battle. For example, by circumcising his army <laughs> right. uh, and having them lay prostrate in pain for several days on the outskirts of Jericho. And then instead of building siege ramps and so forth, he has a liturgical parade going around the city for seven days. Uh, and, and the point there in the book of Joshua is that um, obedience to Torah is what wins battles. And here you see Saul uh, under the pressure of political and military exigencies uh, uh, losing that patience, that patient trust, that waiting on the Lord that's so characteristic uh, of the Old Testament's description of faith. Yeah. And the fact is, in war, you can justify absolutely anything if it's necessary to win. And this is just the, the this is the early stages of it, so it doesn't look so terrible. But you all know where this where this continuum ends. Right. So, okay, um, in chapter 14, again, we get a long story where Jonathan pulls off a clever trick against the Philistines. Saul has sworn a rash vow that anyone who eats before victory will be killed. Turns out Jonathan eats something on his way home. Saul is determined to stand by his rash vow. That, that is a, also a recurring theme of uh, the Old Testament is the danger of the rash vow. But the men stand up and they say they love Jonathan. He did fine and they're not going to let Saul kill him. So that's a nice foreshadowing of the tension between the two generations because Jonathan's loyalties are very quickly going to shift over to David and his life is going to be preserved against Saul's desire to kill him. Um, then we, in chapter 15, then we get the second breach, and this is the final breach, the, the Saul's failure that permanently res- removes him from the Lord's favor. There is um, a battle against the Amalekites, and Saul f- refuses to fully devote them to destruction. Um, Samuel actually at this point takes Saul's part, even though Saul, as you mentioned at the outset, has failed to observe the laws of harem warfare. Samuel, who has been very ambivalent about Saul all along, pleads 
for Saul before the Lord, but the Lord says it is no good. It is over. Saul also begs Samuel. Samuel can't do anything about it. Um, The one thing he does is he finishes the harem job by hacking Agag of the Amalekites to bits. So that is a fun part of being a prophet. Sometimes you get to butcher people to finish the job that the king didn't do. (laughs) Well, again, let's remember what the rule of harem warfare is, that you're not to be motivated. Here's this key idea again of motivation of the heart. You're not to be motivated by the usual reasons for going to war, uh, gain and glory. You're not to be motivated by the spoils that you get to take. When the Lord leads you into war, it is not for your purposes, but for the Lord's purposes. And so anything of possible human usage must be removed uh, from access. It has to be utterly destroyed so that you can't turn the women and the children into slaves and you can't go after the enemy in order to gain their silver and gold and so forth and so on. And here again, you have uh, Saul, as you pointed out earlier, making decisions under the oppressive military uh, urgencies. Now, He's listening to the voice of his own people rather than to the voice of God. Vox populi is not vox dei. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. And that's what Saul is guilty of uh, violating at this point. Just like his rash vows about not eating before the end of the battle, now his rash decision to please the people rather than to obey Torah Uh, all of these behaviors reflect um, a heart that's being motivated by something other than the Spirit of the Lord. Which, uh, to me, raises the question, the Spirit of the Lord has been active in Saul so many times, so what happened? (laughs) That, That is one thing that this text does not tell us. It just happens. So we're we're kind of left with that aporia for interpretation or curiosity or just the hard fact that someone can be given everything and still treat it badly and go another way. I think that, you know, I just I read in preparation for this, Sarah, the really interesting commentary in the Brazos Theological Commentary series on First Samuel by Francesca Murphy. And uh, this was actually one of her Uh, important points in the entire commentary. Uh, And, of course, she's a Roman Catholic, and so she's a lot more comfortable talking about free will uh, (laughs) than you and I might be. But, But on examination, what she is saying is something very interesting. It is exactly God's election that frees our will for obedience or perchance disobedience. It's precisely being called into covenant with God. It's precisely Saul being called to be prince over the people of Israel that in the first place creates the possibility of a free obedience or equally a free disobedience. And that's how she wants to deny that the story of Saul is a tragic story at all. There's no, like you said, for the Greeks, there's no hidden flaw in Saul's character. Uh, It's rather that he, in his own uh, vocation, 
fails uh, to to uh, understand and live and be motivated by his calling uh, from the Lord, and instead substitutes his own self-appointed interpretation of his position. Yeah, that's very good. You know, to put it in more familiar um, Christian theological terms, I mean, the grace of God is unfailing regardless, and I think it's tremendously important that we preach that. The problem isn't on God's side. The problem is when, on our side, we start to receive the gifts and grace of God as our entitlement and possession. And then what? <laughs> what do you do when the one thing alone that saves and sets you right you start to abuse. I mean, I think that's why as Lutherans, we've always talked about an ongoing dialectic between law and gospel sometimes because we're still sinners. We need the law to come along and smack us upside the head and say, hey, you don't get to treat grace that way. Um, but that's, that is the, the, I think it's important to always insist that God continually takes the risk and continually offers the grace and continually is willing to be subjected to the abuse of those that he saves, but not in a, you know, passive way, but always intending to wake us up to what do you have that is not a gift, as St. Paul says. Everything right. you have has been given to you. And I, I think that's more where the the painful truth lies in Saul, is that he's been given everything and does not hold the gift rightly. Yeah, very good, Sarah. Very well said. I think that that points to the fact that we can't really judge, according to this text, uh, Saul or uh, soon to be on the scene, David, according to outward appearances. And I think that's what the text immediately addresses in chapter 16, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go on to that then. So this is the first time we see David. Um, this really strikes me reading the story through because you not infrequently hear this one in the lectionary of Samuel looking through all of David's brothers and, you know, he's off somewhere else looking after the sheep. He's number eight. So, you know, a very disfavored position among the boys. But the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward after, you know, Samuel's secret anointing of, of David to be the new king. And you always hear this in the context of, yay, now we have wonderful King David. You rarely hear this in the context of there already is a king. <laughs> he has massively failed and been rejected by the Lord. And we now have two kings. It's like the Avignon papacy, right? We have two kings at the same time who is really <laughs> king. And then not only does David now have the spirit of the Lord upon him, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And the way that David and Saul meet is that David being skillful on the lyre, L-Y-R-E, not L-I-A-R, uh, comes and his music soothes Saul when the spirit is tormenting him. But wow, what a transition and what a terrible, terrible thing. Yes, the Lord is the king of hearts. And here we see the spirit departing from Saul and being bestowed on David, uh, because in David, the Lord has found a man after his own heart, while Saul, in the trial uh, of his early kingship, has shown himself to have a different heart, a different motive uh, in his kingship. 
But I mean, it's one thing for the Lord to withdraw his spirit and even withdraw the kingship, but to send a harmful spirit. I think we will come back to this one later, but it is an amazing pain point in the transition of the story from one king to the next. Uh, let me just make a quick comment about that, it, because it's the, this painful truth. This is a very painful truth. But it reminds me of the parable of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke about the the uh, man who was healed of one evil spirit and did nothing to uh, 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 did nothing ab- uh, about his healing, and that spirit traveled and found seven spirits more evil than he and brought them back, and the state of the man was worse uh, later than it was in the first place. Uh, so the point here is that human hearts cannot be neutral. Human hearts cannot occupy a position above the fray in spiritual neutrality. You will either serve, as Luther put it so starkly, you will serve God or you will serve the devil. And that is kind of what is being narratively depicted here. And of course, if you're a monotheist, even the devil and the devils are under the sovereignty of the true king of the universe. Ouch. Ouch, indeed. Okay, well, the next chapter takes us to the famous David and Goliath story, which we don't need to go into. It's obviously David's first big show of impressive power. Just two things are worth noting about it is that Saul is there and he attempts to dress David in his own armor and it doesn't fit. And I never realized till now the significance of that symbolically. You know, we we always see it in Sunday school very comically, like David's just a little boy. Of course, he can't wear a man's armor, but it's much more literally he is not going to clothe himself in Saul's ways of doing things, uh, war or kingship or anything else. He is going to do it his own way. And then when David talks about defeating the Philistines, everything is characterized in terms of God's, the Lord God of Israel's power over uh, over the Philistines and defense of his people, not David's own personal prowess. Right. But of course, this, this success of David does nothing but provoke Saul's jealousy, right? <laughs> yes. So then everything starts to ge- degenerate for many, many chapters. In the next, very next chapter, David and Jonathan become best friends forever and swear fidelity. They come home from their battle against the Philistines, and the women come out singing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul becomes insanely jealous and says, what more can David have but the kingdom? And from this point onward, it is just a long war between Saul and David, well, really Saul against David. David does not return it. Um, Saul is so out of his mind that when David is in his presence, even just playing his little lyre to try to calm Saul down, Saul picks up his spear and tries to pin David to the wall with it. Then um, Saul tries to get rid of David by offering his daughter, um, Merab to um, David, which you would think, why would you bring your um, competitor into your own family line? But the trick is that Saul says um, if the bride price is 100 Philistine foreskins, assuming that he will, uh, David will be killed in the effort. Note that David actually remembered this trick and used it against Uriah many years later. So just in case you thought <laughs> right. David was that great. Um In fact, David does so well, he brings home 200 Philistine foreskins. Let's not think about exactly how he went about acquiring them. And, um, but in the (laughs) end, um, 
uh, Saul takes away Merab, he does end up giving her his other daughter, Michael, instead. So it's obviously a kind of keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of move on Saul's part. Um, And then Saul thinks that Mikal will betray David into his hands, but she actually helps David escape out the window, again calling back Rahab and the spies back in the city of Jericho in Joshua. And... um, then, weirdly enough, when Saul goes in search of David, um, he gets caught up in the spirit of God by accident, it seems, and starts prophesying. And people start saying again, oh, is Saul among the prophets? Because probably because the subtext is he seems like a crazy, murderous lunatic. Um, and then <laughs> there's basically a, a vow between Jonathan and David of mutual protection. And then they, they part at this point in time and don't see each other alive ever again. Um, Jonathan just saying, I know that you're going to become the king. I only ask that you not kill my descendants when you come into your kingship. And then for the next number of chapters, we sort of follow David as he's running all over the place, trying to get away from Saul. Saul is chasing him wherever he can. Uh, Interestingly, when people die in David's attempt to escape, he takes moral responsibility for his for their deaths. So we see him emerging even when he is like the hunted animal. David is already emerging as ethically superior in his moral concern for the people of Israel. Um, And then we have a doublet, again, sort of like we have the doublet of Saul's two failures or breaches that lose him the kingship. We have a doublet, again, of Saul and David's last kind of personal encounter. And the point in both of them is that um, Saul is vulnerable. In one case, he is um, relieving himself in a cave. And in another example, he is asleep. And both times, David takes something from Saul's person and then shows it to him later to prove look, I could have killed you. You were in my hands and I didn't. And what's I think really astounding about this is that David respects Saul's anointing as king more than the Lord God of Israel does. He (laughs) will not lift his hand against Saul. He calls Saul his father. There's clearly still some deep affection and honor and respect from David towards Saul. He does not seem to be actually, this doesn't seem to be the story of an ambitious upstart who is trying to take out the king so he can be king. the, The story really depicts it as David simply has been anointed. He's stuck with this fact and it is forced him into this enemy relationship with an elder man that he loves and admires. And, you know, he's best friends with the man's son and is married to the man's daughter. David, in some way, really, really does not want the situation to exist. And he wishes there was some way he and Saul could coexist peacefully. And it's only in these these two scenes where Saul momentarily can relinquish his his paranoid and entirely justified uh, rage and envy against David. Uh, he even says, you know, in one of them, is this your voice, my son, David? You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil evil. You know, you let me go away safe, but anyone else would have killed me. And you just feel the the pathos and the sorrow of Saul, but he he can't break himself out of it. Uh, as much as he as David wants him to, Saul is simply stuck in this I don't even know what you call it. This is such a unique kind of situation. And I keep wanting to say tragedy, but tragedy still isn't the right word here. Well, it's a trans, trans, It's a transfer of the kingship that's going on step by step uh, through this through this whole uh, series of episodes 
in which uh, the uh, David behaves like a true king, and Saul increasingly acts like a, a maniacal tyrant. And that uh, pathos of the story is that they're kind of forced into these roles. And, in, and as you point out, then the human emotion that comes from, as it were, being, uh, being ruled and overruled by the hidden providence of the Lord. Well, it doesn't work, despite this uh, scene full of pathos between the two of them. Saul just can't stop. He he is really a man out of control. And I, I think there there's much um, in history that shows us that tyrants can't ever stop being tyrants. One of the worst parts of tyranny is you're stuck with it forever, because the second you stop, you die, and you know it. And that is, of course, where this story is going to end. Um, so there's ongoing, you know, Philistines kind of in the background. Uh, Saul goes out to fight them one last time. He's so scared that he goes to a medium uh, or witch at Endor, even though he himself had apparently cast all the mediums and necromancers out of the land. And he actually forces her to call up Samuel from the dead. Samuel has died in the meanwhile. So this is the most horrifying breach of the line between the living and the dead in Old Testament perspective. I mean, there's almost nothing worse Saul could have done at this point, but forced the dead Samuel to speak to him. Uh, Samuel is as irritable in death as he is in life and says... <laughs> Nothing is going to help. The Lord has turned against you. Your whole family is going to die to the Philistines and leave me alone already. And then <laughs> the medium makes Saul eat something before he goes out to his last battle. A, a strange moment of um, mercy from someone whose way of making a living is extremely corrupt. Anyway, then a couple more scenes of David. And then finally, we have this last huge battle with the Philistines who kill all of Saul's sons, including Jonathan, which is heartbreaking. Saul is severely wounded but not killed, so he asks his armor bearer to drive the sword through him and kill him so he won't be captured and tortured by the Philistine kings. The boy refuses. Uh, we're told later that actually the boy agreed to it, but so it's kind of a, a two different versions of the story there. Um, so Saul actually falls on his own sword. So he, essentially, Essentially, he dies by his own hand, by suicide. Again, a horrifying thing in, um, in Old Testament, well, biblical thinking. So, which means that nearly the whole house of Saul is wiped out. But they're wiped out by the Philistines. They're not wiped out by David. And I think that's pretty um, important. And at last, the Philistines find Saul's body. They take his armor to their god's temple and behead the corpse. And then the men of Jabesh um, in, in the territory of Israel hear about it. They make a raid. They steal the corpses and bury them in Jabesh and fast for seven days in mourning. And that's how First Samuel ends. I'll let you make a comment, and then we'll just tie up the few loose ends that appear in Second Samuel about Saul's family. Yeah, so the, the trajectory of Saul's uh, life after his uh, uh, lapses and rejection as king leads to this final denouement, this this tragic, in our popular sense of the word, this sad, sorrowful, uh, uh, but as it were, uh, poetically unfolding trajectory that just has to end in suicide, in self-destruction. You could say that from the moment Saul lost patience in waiting on the Lord and took into his own hands uh, the prerogatives that belong to the prophet alone and assuming that the kingship could control the prophet that way. From that moment on, uh, uh, his path into self-destruction was fixed. 
and step by step by step, it leads to this denouement. Mm. Yeah, actually, I just was listening to another uh, podcast with the theologian who commented, if Judas had had the patience, surely there would have been a reconciliation. Like the, the story of the New Testament is so much of enemy love. If Judas had not taken his own life, would there not have been some kind of forgiveness and reconciliation? But he didn't. And, you know, that, that of course, is the, the core tragedy um, or flaw there, too, is the refusal to wait on the Lord to do things in the Lord's own time. So this kind of connection between the lack of patience and, in your sense, the eschatological virtue um, and, you know, ultimate self-destruction is, is mirrored in the New Testament as well. Yeah, and Paul Paul makes a fundamental point of this. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Almost as as if Paul is commenting on that lament of Saul to David that you just read a little while ago. You repaid me uh, with good, but I repaid you with evil. And then Paul says, uh, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And that's the heart of patience, not taking justice into your own hands, not trying to um, uh, do what only God can do for us. And I think that includes justice against ourselves. I mean, that is why suicide is fundamentally wrong, because, no, the, the Lord is the one who has the final say on your life. You don't have it on your own. So, yeah. Well, then, so to finish up in Second Samuel, it, this begins with David learning about Saul and Jonathan's death. And um, a young Amalekite claims he is the one who ran Saul through and killed him. So David executes him, but for the reason of lifting his hand against the Lord's anointed. So again, even at this position now where David has no more rival, he's still referring to Saul as the Lord's anointed. And he sings a very long and beautiful song of lament for Saul and Jonathan, whom he calls beloved and lovely. There is a temporary transfer of kingship to Saul's son, Ishbosheth, who is a weak and unimpressive figure. That doesn't last long. Ishbosheth almost immediately alienates Saul's commander, Abner, because Abner has taken one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah, for himself. And basically, then Abner is so irritated by this that he transfers his loyalty to David as well. Um, but uh, Ishbosheth uh, survives a, um, a little bit longer, only to be murdered by two men who think they're doing David a favor. David is furious that they have killed yet another descendant of Saul, so he has them executed. And by this point, the only living direct descendant of Saul is a little boy who um, is lame in his feet, and he is allowed to live with his nurse. Um, then many years pass, and David grows up and gets into all kinds of trouble at his own. But the last closing chapter of the drama between David and Saul is in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel, there has been a three-year famine, and David gets an entirely private oracle that blames it on Saul for his murder of the Gibeonites. So we have never heard anything about Saul murdering Gibeonites up till now. So David goes to the Gibeonites, asks what they can do, and they politely ask for all the seven remaining descendants of Saul, um, two from him directly and the other five through his daughter Merab. Um, who was the one that David was going to marry, but didn't end up marrying. And um, David, despite his vow to Jonathan to protect all of the descendants of the house of Saul, hands the seven of them over to the Gibeonites. And then they are hanged on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perish together. The exact meaning of the 
the form of execution is not clear. It's something seems to be a, com- a combination of impaling and exposing, which is remarkably similar to a crucifixion. But the famine actually does not end. The rain does not come. And what finally turns the situation is Rizpah, that concubine of Saul that Abner had taken, comes out to protect the bodies of these people that she is intimately connected to through Saul in order to prevent them from being devoured by birds and animals. And when David hears of that, he finally recognizes in some sense his failure to do right by them. So he has the bodies uh, taken together along with the bodies of Saul and Jonathan that had been buried in Jabesh at the end of 1 Samuel, brings them all back to the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. So the entire uh, Saul-eyed line is is, um, brought back together and buried together in one place. And then after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So there is some very modest um, reconciliation or um, family togetherness for the family of Saul at the very end of this story. But it does it does kind of give you this feeling like you're reading a, a thriller and at the very end you're like, wait, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Because David claimed to love Jonathan so much and to protect his descendants. And then at the end, he very conveniently kills off every last person who could possibly claim the lineage to the throne through Saul. Yeah. And so have we gone from worse to better? Have we gone from the chaos of the book of Judges and everyone did what was righteous in their own eyes for there was no king? Have we gone from that state to a better state with the institution of the monarchy? Uh, well, well, someday Sarah will have to do an episode on the story of David now, you know, to follow up on this. But let's let's in conclusion focus on all the interesting theological problems that are raised by this uh, sorry uh, story of Saul. Okay, well, why don't you start? Yeah, I think uh, as I mentioned at the beginning. I'm, I would be concerned that we not treat this either as a Greek tragedy. I don't think there's any kind of uh, uh, a secret flaw in Saul's character that sets him up for a disaster uh, as he runs into the nemesis uh, of the cosmos. I don't think the modern version of Saul as a tragic story is right either, shaking his fist at a capricious Lord who has rejected him and in fact has set him up for failure and so defiantly, uh, bravely uh, facing up to the tyranny of the divine, you know, or something like that. And it's not even fate because Samuel says clearly to Saul, you would have had the kingdom, but you're not anymore. So it's not like he was always destined to rise and then fall and lose the kingship. Something happened in history to change the trajectory it might have had. Right. The motives, and I think the text clues us to the motives of his heart and to the absence and presence of the spirit of the Lord as a factor in that disposition of his of Saul's heart. Um, but I, what I wanted to point out here is that a lot of the critical discussion of 1 Samuel has, in its usual source-critical ways, has divided up the books into, book into pro-monarchic and anti-monarchic sources, uh, uh, sources that were in favor of kingship and sources that were hostile to kingship. 
And then, you know, and then it says the the book of 1 Samuel is a pastiche of these various sources. And that's why it appears to be telling such a self-contradictory story. And I think that that's wrong, too, just for the same reasons reading Joshua like that is wrong. Uh, the, the, the effect of the narrative is quite intentional, that after the alienation of the human heart from the lordship of God, uh, everything politically is an emergency order. There is no state that can be eternal, fixed, and provide justice without any problems. The state is always a, uh, or the political sovereignty more abstractly, is always a very flawed project of one sinner trying to control other sinners from the kind of violence that destroys humanity uh, or the society altogether. As Luther used to say, it's one jackass punishing another jackass, <laughs> right? And through the hidden providence of God, who is working behind the scenes of political history, that's so typical of the narrative here, uh, uh, behind the scenes of outward history, uh, who's working and affecting and judging the human heart. So I think, I mean, that speaks to two equally dangerous naivetes. So there is the naivete of admiration and obedience to the state as the as the eternal, as the status quo, as the, you know, they wouldn't be in power unless they were, you know, good and anointed and appointed to that role. And therefore, I outsource my, my conscience and my obedience to the state because the state is all good and all powerful. But there is an equal and equally dangerous naivete that says, oh, the state is so corrupt. It is beyond redemption. There's nothing more to be done with it. Burn it all down. Start over. Let's do it right next time. And that that feeling of we'll do it right next time in the modern period, this is much more a modern thing than a, an ancient or medieval thing, has wrought its own unbelievable destructions because it denies the point that you said is that all government is an emergency order. And now that doesn't mean that you can not be, I think that the point is in the middle is the painful, difficult, complex responsibility of being in and with a corrupt government as a corrupt person and trying to minimize the damage, always knowing that that's what you are doing. You are minimizing damage, uh, maintaining a modicum of order so that hopefully most people or more people can get on with the actual meaningful business of life. But uh, Either, either naivete is a form of idealization, which is just, it, it's completely blocked by this Old Testament view of how uh, kingship or government generally works. Well, right. And remember, in First Samuel, we're beginning a long, sad story of Israel's brief moment in the uh, sun, and then it's... Uh, we're, uh, steady decline into injustice, tyranny, um, and p the international geopolitics, which bring about the downfall, uh, first of the northern and then of the southern kingdom. Right, right. So I guess for me, one of the interesting intersection questions here then is we see Saul both personally 
individually and as the king. And so this raises to my mind the question, is Saul rejected personally by God? Does God ever reject people personally, or is it specifically Saul's person that has been vaulted to kingship and then abused that gift of kingship badly that requires his apparent total rejection by God because he is the king, but not necessarily his total rejection eternally? I know this is a little bit anachronistic because they're not necessarily thinking about eternal life at the time. But um, it's it's so hard to see Saul in this, both his person and his king, in this um, hostile relationship to God. Yeah, you know, that question, Sarah, doesn't it kind of reflect a, a very much a, a very developed Protestant consciousness of loving uh, the sinner but hating the sin or something along those lines. Well, I think that's um, New Testament, not Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I'm not so sure, though. Because, you know, for, especially for the Bible, you are your body. And your body is located in time and space. And so you are what happens biographically to you between birthday and death day. That is your identity. That's what marks you out as a person. And if as a person you have been anointed and therefore called into being prince over the tribes of Israel, uh, that's who you have become. And that's what you are responsible for. Now, but what happens to you personally when that calling is revoked? What's left for you? There's nothing left for you, is there? Right. Well, you see, you see the arb the arbitrariness of election is even more painful, or the apparent arbitrariness of election is more painful when then the election is revoked and turned into rejection. So Saul didn't go looking for kingship. He didn't ask for any of this to happen to him, but he became king, and then he screwed it up, and now he's evidently rejected everlastingly by God. So it just, I think this is where the, both the, uh, the ancient sense of there must be fate and the modern sense of, you know, rage against the machine are so offended by this story. Um, I'd like to think my offense is a little bit more located in the um, promise of the New Testament of love of enemies than either the ancient or the modern objections, but. Right. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right, Sarah. The this is an episode that takes place historically uh, at the beginnings of the monarchy in Israel. And it, that's its horizon, of, as Gadamer would say, that's its horizon of possibilities. It, it, it can't see into the rise of faith in the resurrection, and uh, let alone the rise of uh, God's reconciling act in Christ. Uh, to redeem even the rejected and the lost and so forth. It just tells us in all its terror the story of a man uh, who lost his way and then became addicted to persevering in his lostness and how that step-by-step -step led him to self-destruction. That is, it's a sad and terrifying tale, but we should let it do its work on us just as such uh, without without trying to rescue it too quickly. Hmm. That's true. And as we've talked in our episodes of, on experience, you know, th this is a, a real experience of what happens to people in the world. And we might want to do with something with it after the fact, as you say, but you can't alter 
that the, the story just is what it is. And it, it if it ends with any note of reconciliation, it's this very ambiguous reconciliation of all the bodies being buried together after Rizpa's vigil over the, the corpses that have been exposed. Here's how, let me just read a little passage from Francesca Murphy's commentary on this topic, Sarah, because I think this is the real, the, the, the powerful sadness of the story of, of Saul and how it should uh, affect us. I think this is getting it exactly right, I think. Uh, she writes, for the melodramatic imagination of modernity, a tragic hero is one who defies God. In this sort of context, Saul becomes a sort of damned soul. Uh, thus Saul displays heroic greatness in his refusal to acquiesce in the fate prophesied by Samuel, taking extraordinary steps to hold on to his kingdom. A lesser man, a man without hubris, might merely accept his destiny. Saul wrestles against it. That's the what Francesca Murphy calls the melodramatic interpretation of Saul by the modern mind. Now here's her theological response. If Saul had accepted his destiny, which at the present point in the narrative is David as son-in-law, he would have forgiveness because he would be able to recognize himself as forgiven. But this Saul does not and cannot do. To live is to change. But Saul has become a lifeless figure. And if rigidity is the comic and laughter its corrective, Saul has become not a heroic god-defier, but an involuntary tool whose conspiracy to murder is the unwitting lover of a vulgar comedy in which foreskins rain down from heaven and a wedding is won as David returns from battle with the 200 foreskins to take Saul's daughter as his wife. What do you think of that? Well, that's very good, but I, I have to say I'm really struck that she uses the word forgiveness because that, to me, does not appear in the story as even uh, an option. So I wonder if that is her own way of um, sneaking in a little bit of New Testament concern to open up possibilities. But I think the story asks, what if there really is no possibility? What if there's just no way to make the situation right? And that there's nothing but the long war between Saul and David and, and Saul's essential suicide at the end. I don't like it because <laughs> I don't want it to be that way. But, but I, yeah. Right. Uh, one of the things Murphy points out is um, in this contrast between Saul and David, is that different standards of judgment apply to David than to Saul. Uh, Saul is what she calls a charismatic king whose office depends upon its, is dependent upon Samuel's prophecy and sustaining that distinction and relationship to Samuel's prophecy the very thing that Saul violates as, uh, in the beginning of his decline. Uh, it's different with uh, David, she argues. Uh, with David, David is no longer a charismatic king. 
the Spirit of the Lord does not fall on uh, David the same way that it fell upon Saul, or at least that she are, she's trying to argue that. Let me say that without getting deeply into the story of David. And so when David sins famously by sending Uriah into battle and taking Bathsheba, uh, and Nathan calls him out, he does repent, but he doesn't lose the kingship as a result. He loses the child that Bathsheba uh, was going to bear for him or something like that. So a different standard is applying now to David uh, than did to Saul, and uh, that is why the kingship had to be taken away from Saul and established in a new mode with David. Yeah. Well, we're about at our out of time here. Um, I had proposed we could possibly talk about reading uh, the first, the Old Testament Saul figuratively through the New Testament Saul, uh, also known as Paul, but who is called Saul for nearly half of the book of Acts. And I don't think that is an accident. Uh, That is a very deep thing and we don't have time for it. Maybe I will do an an episode of Theology and a Recipe later this year on it. So any of you listening who don't... Now, wait a minute. You can't leave with a teaser like that. You have to say a few things about that before you <laughs> sign off. Well, okay. Well, first of all, listeners, go to my website, sarahhenleekywilson.com, and sign up for Theology and a Recipe if you haven't already. And I will do a Tale of Two Sauls later this year. Well, no, I, I, I'm actually, I did an entire preaching series earlier uh, in 2021 um, going through this uh, first Samuel story. I started at the beginning with uh, Samuel's birth all the way through um, just before David arrives on the scene and talking about Saul's rise and fall. And um, But I matched it because um, I defied the lectionary with extracts from the book of Acts that trace the story of Saul, who eventually who starts out as an enemy of Jesus and becomes the um, you know the leading apostle. So I talk about Saul as the first king of Israel and the last apostle of Jesus, and kind of read their stories against each other. And um, again, Paul in his letters never calls himself Saul, but it's important to Luke in his story in Acts, and I don't think it is at all accidental. Um, and there are just uh, and not least of all the fact that uh, Paul himself also says he is a son of the tribe of. Benjamin, and he right. makes a big point about that he comes from that lineage, and obviously he has been named for that first king that Benjamin, the tribe, continued to be very proud of. I guess where I would, um, I I would really zero in mostly is to say that in a sense, Saul number one of the Old Testament is God's rejected chosen. He is the one who was anointed but then loses it. And Saul number two in the New Testament is God's chosen rejected. He is the one who has been opposed to Jesus all along and then is called into apostleship. So it's my feeling that what Luke is trying to do is actually repair the damage of the tragic story of Saul in the New Testament by seeing this correspondence between the old Saul and the new, and that there is some sort of healing of that of that broken relationship by this this second Saul. In a way, as Jesus is so often depicted as the second David, um, I think uh, I'm more and more convinced that you cannot tell the David story without Saul, So, and you cannot tell the Jesus story without Paul, but then there's crossover between the two of them too. So the Jesus story also needs the Saul story. And, you know, if we're 
uh, I think of, you know, Bart talking so much about Jesus as the rejected one on our behalf and taking God's rejection into himself. Well, Saul is the true figure of God's rejection (laughs) more than any other New Testament or any other Old Testament figure. That is Saul. So I, I guess I would want to expand the reading of both Paul and Jesus through the figure of Saul more than has been more than I have ever seen really really done. That, that's where my fascination lies. That's that's really intriguing, and I'll look forward to that uh, edition of Theology in a Recipe. Uh, but I just want to make two comments about that before we close up on this, Sarah. Um, uh, the first is there's a correspondence, I think, between. Saul's desperate trip to the medium at Endor, which brings up the shade of Samuel to confirm his rejection, and the risen and ascended Christ appearing to Saul on the road to Mm. Damascus to announce his election. Uh, I think that's a nice reversal there, isn't it? Um, um, Then secondly, um, on this very theme, uh, Murphy closes out her commentary um, with a, uh, a, a, a tweak of Karl Barth's doctrine of Jesus as the one who was elected to be rejected in our place. And uh, she writes this. This is the final sentences of her commentary. Just as Christ, the chosen one, became in a sacred exchange. Hey, Lutherans, are you listening? It's called the <laughs> joyful exchange. In a sacred exchange became the one rejected for us in order to confer on us his election. This exchange relationship recurs constantly in salvation history following Christ. Again and again, he who is chosen must be ready to be vicariously rejected so that through him another can be chosen also. One stands in the place of the other. And it is an expression of God's faith in us that he draws us into this system of vicarious election. David does not supersede Paul, Saul, nor does Christianity supersede Judaism. David is elected in the service of Saul. Yeah, that's wonderful. And you see so potently David's love for Saul continues. David just goes on loving Saul, who he should hate and want to get rid of, but he doesn't. And I think you you see that too in in Jesus loving Saul, the number one enemy of the church, and coming to him again and again. That's a wonderful parallel. Right. And so the Christological reading of 1 Samuel then becomes exceedingly fruitful theologically, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. All right. Well, that was fun. (laughs) So we're going to continue the political discussion next time as we examine Thomas Jefferson, theologian. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.